There are times in the midst of trials and traumas of life when we wonder to ourselves, where is God? And why did he let this happen? For Jerry Sitzer, one of those events occurred in 1991 when he and his wife, their four children, and Jerry's mother were hit head-on by a vehicle traveling at 85 miles an hour. The collision was fatal for Jerry's wife, for his mom, and for one of his four children. As Jerry reflects back on that event today, he sees it as something that was ultimately faith-affirming. Through a long journey, often very difficult, I really did discover the Christian faith is true. Grace really is available to get us through these hard stretches of life. The ultimate message of Christianity is not self-help, it's God's help. This is Family Life Today. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. We'll hear today how a tragic car accident can be a grace disguised. Stay tuned. And welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. You and I were having a conversation uh, not long ago with Dr. Al Mohler, uh, the president of Southern Seminary, and we asked him about questions he gets thrown by the secular media. We said, what are the tough questions that they ask you, the ones that put you on the spot? Right. And he, without even thinking, said, we always come back to the issue of the problem of evil and suffering, and how can there be a good God when there is suffering in the world? And a few days later, my son uh, said, I just found the quote that is the most tweeted quote on Twitter. Apparently, the statistics are in that this has been tweeted to more people than anything else on Twitter. I can't wait. Here's what it says. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reason for allowing it to continue that you can't know. <laughs> Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, you can't. And that's a quote from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And it's right, isn't it? And we don't know, and we don't always know what God's up to. He is God, and we're not. We have a guest with us today on Family Life Today that I think is going to minister to a lot of our listeners. And actually, I was introduced to this guest by my wife, Barbara, who joins us on Family Life Today as well. Welcome, sweetie. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Jerry Sitzer um, has written this book, A Grace Disguised, which is a story out of his own life that occurred a number of years ago. Jerry uh, lives in Spokane, Washington, up in the uh, eastern section of that great state of Washington. He is a professor of theology at Whitworth University, a master of divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, and has his doctorate in history from the University of Chicago, which leaves me with only one question, Jerry. White Sox or Cubs? <laughs> or were you there long enough to even care? Oh, he had to be if he got his Ph.D. Dodgers. Oh. <laughs> well, I do welcome you to the broadcast, and uh, I am grateful for uh, you writing this book, A Grace Disguised. 
And I want Barbara to share with our listeners kind of the context out of which uh, she gave me Jerry's book. Now, was this something that somebody gave you as a gift? It was a book that someone recommended to me actually a number of years ago, and I bought it, started reading it, and it was in my library. But I didn't finish the book until last summer after our granddaughter Molly was born and only lived seven days and then died. And as we began to sort of try to make sense of what God had done and what he was up to, I pulled that book off the shelf. And this time I had a real heart for it. I needed it. And I read it all the way through. I was constantly underlining and reading portions of it to Dennis and saying, listen to what this says. And Mm -hmm. I bought several copies, gave one to a couple of my daughters. I gave one to Molly's mother, Rebecca. But I gave one to a couple of our other daughters, too, and said, you need to have this in your library, and if you don't read it all the way through right now, you will read it eventually. Mm-hmm. It's really the story of, uh, well, um, uh, it's a love story of sorts that started when you met your wife, Linda. How did you meet her, Jerry? I was a student at Hope College. She was a student at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. And after I experienced a conversion between my sophomore and junior year, we became very good friends, really best friends. And uh, one day I was standing in a group of people and somebody got my attention from maybe 100 yards away and I turned and said something smart to them, I'm sure. Uh, I was a little cocky back then. <laughs> Linda was in that circle and I turned back and our eyes met and that was it right there. I just fell in love right in the spot. You were smitten. Oh, my goodness. So I how long did it? But you'd known her for months before this? We, we were very good friends, yeah. So what in that moment? You don't know, huh? Don't know. No, no. But our eyes met, and it was just different. And so I asked her out a few days later, and we were married eight months later. No, no, no. I want to know, I want to know how you ask her to marry you, because it has to be a great story. Well, we went out to some property that my family owned off the Grand River in, up in the hills and uh, made kind of a day of it, took a nice hike. And I had uh, hidden uh, a family heirloom, a little... Uh, silver container and the wedding or the engagement ring was in that and that also was a family stone and uh asked her uh to marry me Mm. and so uh you were married for 20 years 20 years just shy of 20 years right had four children right she was a a homeschooler and enjoyed uh, teaching your kids taking on uh, field trips of sorts right Right. yeah she was a multi-talented woman i mean early on she was just very talented very bright she was a professional musician, singer, uh, choir director. She was the director of the professional children's choir in Spokane, uh, paid soloist at our uh, our home church, that sort of thing. But also a homeschooler. Mm-hmm. And you were on a you were on a field trip where you went to Idaho, and it was not a not a normal field trip that you would think of when you think of homeschoolers. She had just completed a, a unit on Native American cultures with uh, my two oldest who were being homeschooled at the time. And uh, we went on a field trip to a Native American powwow, had dinner with the tribal leaders, had a wonderful time, wonderful conversation. Ironically, one of the topics that came up was the curse of alcoholism at the tribe and the violence that often resulted from it. And they spoke with great pain over that. These were really wonderful people, some fine Christian people. And uh, after the dinner with them, we went to the powwow and enjoyed it. My my two daughters, who were then 
eight and four, actually went out and danced with the tribe for a while. I continued my conversation with Linda and several of the tribal leaders until about 8.30, and then we decided to go home. Now, this was 1991. 1991, September 27. And you were there with your wife and your children, plus your own mom. My mom came for the weekend. She and my wife were going to go dress shopping for a new dress for uh, a solo performance she was going to be doing, uh, The Messiah, in December. And typical for my mom, she brought 12 quarts of frozen blueberries packed in, in ice, you know, all that. that just, so it was so typical for what she would do. Mm. Wonderful woman, great grandma and uh, great mom, very close to our family. You'd gone to Idaho for this uh, field trip, and uh, you decided to head back home to Spokane at that point? We did. It was dark out, obviously, and uh, on a lonely stretch of highway, only about 10 minutes from the where the powwow was held, I noticed a car coming on at a really rapid rate of speed, slowed down just a little bit. It was a curve. And uh, so I was quite alert to this. And without any warning, he just drove right into me, missed missed the curve and just plowed head on at 85 miles an hour. In fact, it was so head on that his car cartwheeled over ours. So, I mean, it didn't roll. It cartwheeled down the highway. So it was uh, it was awful. And in the wake of that accident, as soon as I could collect myself, I was not injured seriously, uh, bruised and that sort of thing. I looked around and knew that it was uh, it was really bad. My mother, who was sitting way in the back, was seriously injured. And uh, my uh, four-year-old, uh, I could tell, was was dead. She was had broken her neck, and I uh, tried to get a pulse, did mouth-to-mouth, but... It was hopeless. And I could tell Linda, my wife, was catastrophically injured, too. My other kids were dazed, crying, screaming. It was just chaotic. All the windows were broken out in the car. But my my door could open. So I got the kids out who were mobile. Uh, that is Catherine, who was eight, and David, who was six, and John, who was two. I found out later John had a broken femur and some other injuries. But uh, the other two kids were just bruised, but but Okay. And then went back to try to attend to Linda, got a pulse, but knew she wasn't going to live. Her injuries were just too severe. And uh, as I said, did mouth-to-mouth and Diana Jane on the, uh, on the ground, but she was, she was gone. And uh, got to my mother only briefly, but then something really beautiful happened. You know, you, you find these flowers in the midst of ashes almost right away. Uh, people began to stop. I mean, the, the scene was chaotic. And uh, the driver survived, but his wife, who was nine months pregnant, died, and the unborn baby uh, died as well. So five casualties in the accident. Uh, Some guy got out of the car and went over to my mother and reached out to her through the broken window and held her hand and stroked her arm until she died. That is a beautiful act of grace to me. Uh, It was very courageous of him in the midst of that chaos and that violence uh, to to break through that with with love and mercy. I wish I knew who that man was. I'd like to thank him. What what a surreal moment that had to be for you. I mean, almost like you've stepped out of your out of time and space and your body. I don't even know how to describe it other than just completely surreal. Yeah, it was surreal. I have such vivid memories to this day. Nothing has really faded at all. 
at first it was a nightmare to have those kinds of memories. Not so bad anymore. It's been integrated into the landscape of my life. Uh, it, it, it doesn't haunt me like it used to. But anyway, I mean, we waited a long time before emergency vehicles came and then they kind of took over. I got to a phone as soon as I could to call my sister and just say something unspeakable had happened. After about an hour, the the survivors, namely my three children, Catherine, David, and John and I were all put in the same uh, emergency vehicle and then were transported another hour up to Coeur d'Alene uh, for emergency care. And that one hour was probably the most significant hour I've ever had in my life. It really was a turning point for me. It was like a wormhole from one reality to another. Uh, that honestly is the most accurate way I could describe it. Time ceased to have meaning. It it could have been 10 years. That That is frozen in my memory, that period of time. And it was probably the most rational moment I've ever had in my life. It was quiet. John was sedated. The other kids were whimpering, but it was quiet. The emergency personnel didn't say anything. And I had one hour to just be I thought about the accident. I thought about the scene. I knew what had happened. And I thought about what would be as a result. I considered the tasks set before me. I really was, I, I was, I had a burden that was placed on my shoulders. And in a sense, a divine mandate that said, you draw a line in the sand right now and decide what you want to be and what you want to come from this experience. And I did. And I said, I want the bleeding to stop right here. This is it. I don't want to do things that are going to set in motion more and more pain and more and more bleeding that could go on for generations. And I made the basic decision right there and then that I was going to somehow, by the grace of God, respond and live this story out in a way that was going to be redemptive. And redemption was really the key term that just kept coming back to me, redemption. This is not the final word. You know, I want our listeners to hear what's wrapped up in your statement because you you make this statement in your book. I mean, here you are. You've lost your mother, your your bride of 20 years, your daughter, and you're in this ambulance headed to get care for your, your other three children. And in your book, you make this statement. You said, loss does not have to be the defining moment in our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to that loss. It's not what happens to us that matters so much as what happens in us. You really believe that, don't you? I do believe it. Uh, By the grace of God. Uh, I didn't write a self-help book here. I don't believe that. The ultimate message of Christianity is not self-help. It's God's help. And uh, through a long journey, often very difficult, I really did discover the Christian faith is true and that grace really is available to get us through these hard stretches of life. And that my response, choosing to trust the grace of God, was far more significant than the event itself. And, you know, my kids would say the same thing today. They would say that the accident is actually not that significant. It's what's come out of it that's significant. What seems remarkable to me as you describe this hour of rational clarity is the absence of grief. I mean, I think of somebody living through what you've just lived through, and I would think this person would be a grieving 
basket case, and it's not that you didn't experience grief. Oh, no, I did. Do you, you think this was kind of a shock response, or was this just the grace of God giving you this moment of clarity to prepare you for what was ahead? I suppose you could say there was some shock involved in it. But, uh, Bob, there was something more than that, honestly. I, I look back on it this day with a sense of wonder. I, it wasn't simply that that I had uh, not absorbed the significance. I knew what had happened to me. It wasn't even as if I was holding it off. I think that's, I think God gave me that gift. I think he gave me one hour to kind of decide what I was going to believe and where I was going to head. And I walked out of that emergency vehicle in Coeur d'Alene into a different world. Mm. And I collapsed. And it was hard going for a long time. Can I ask the two of you, did, did you experience anything similar to that, Barbara, in, in going through what you guys went through with the death of Molly? Well, I think we did, although it wasn't anywhere near as dramatic as what Jerry was describing. But we watched our kids. And as we watched them respond to the news that Molly was not going to live, they had a choice to make in those first moments. And I think those early moments of facing tragedy and loss um, and a crisis like that are the, de- are the defining moments. And they decided they were going to believe God. They were going to believe that he was good and that he was sufficient and that he knew what he was doing. And that really set the course for them from there on out. And we chose to believe the same thing. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a specified time frame, as Jerry was describing. But nonetheless, I think the same thing happened. And I think of my brother who lost his 7-year-old son in a car accident. And my brother John has always said, while he was laying there in the car and he knew that his son Rick was dead and he was waiting for the ambulance to come, he said, I had this time with with God. He said, I knew he was with me. There was a presence about that time waiting in the car. And he said, I knew that it was going to be okay, that God was in control and that God's grace would see me through this. Mm. So I think in the moment of crisis, I think God gives us that opportunity to choose, will we believe him or not? I like what Barbara said about setting a course. That's different from solving all the problems. I mean, when you suffer a loss, divorce, for example, a terminal illness, loss of a job, it can be other things that are a little less dramatic and tragic. I think we do have the power to set a course. And that makes a huge difference over a long period of time. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it, it gets us going in a particular direction. And I think I did that by the grace of God. I think it ultimately tests what we practically believe about God. I mean, do we believe he's a good God and that uh, he really does rule in wisdom and out of love and mercy and care for his creation? And are are we going to assume that all of a sudden God became bad or all of a sudden became weak? Are we going to believe that God rules in a sovereign way that we don't understand? Back to your quote at the beginning of the broadcast, Bob, he is transcendent. He sees things we we don't see. I'll never forget going to a a funeral of a a little girl who had died in a tragic car wreck and, and um, that father stood up uh, in front of the, the congregation at her funeral and said, I refuse to ask the question why until I can ask it of the one who can answer it. And only God knows the why. And 
And back to your question, Bob, I didn't have a line in the sand like Jerry did where it was a defining moment of deciding uh, to respond to Rebecca and Jake's crisis and the loss of Molly. But I would say in the past seven or eight years, Barbara and I have faced a number of losses, a number of tragedies that as those have occurred, we've had to process through them and are in the midst of them and have had to decide what will we believe about God in the process? And is he worthy of being trusted? And he is. Well, and this accident happened 20 years post-conversion for you. You'd come to faith in Christ on the college campus, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd had a a track record with God in in the dailiness of life that when something like this happens, there's almost an instinct that says, "There, where do I go? I had some advantages. Uh, One was a sturdy faith that had been established over a long period of time. The other one, I think I inherited this from my mother, ironically, who died in the accident of a pretty sturdy personality. Those were some things that were useful along the way. Although, hey, pain is pain, (laughs) any way you want to cut it. And you know people or have met people who just dissolved in their moment of pain and didn't have that rational clarity that you described. I think what happens is that we give some kind of tragedy more power than it deserves. And it does become the defining moment. Instead of the response being the defining moment, it's the thing itself. And then pretty soon it's affecting other relationships. It's affecting life habits that we form. And 20 or 30 years later, that divorce or that loss or whatever continues to dominate our lives. That's what I call the second death, and it's actually worse than the initial death, far worse than the loss of Linda and my mom, Grace, and Dinah Jane would have been, say, the loss my children would have experienced in my bitterness. In fact, I have an interesting story to tell you about six months, a year after the accident. I got an anonymous telephone call from a young woman who said, Mr. Sitzer, I, I want to tell you my story. When I was a young girl, my mother died of cancer. And uh, I've been in therapy now for six years. I thought to myself, this is not a helpful conversation. She said, no, let me continue my story. I'm in therapy not because I lost my mother, but I lost my father at the same time, and he's still alive. He became non-functional, so overcome with grief and bitterness that I lost both parents, but my dad is still alive. And she said, don't let that happen to you, and she hung up the phone. Now, she didn't give me new information, but it was a wonderful reminder to me Mm -hmm. that the role I was playing was significant and that by my own attitude and spirit, I was setting a course. I was giving cues to my children. You're also making choices for your own life that are going to determine who you become as a man. And I think of the listeners who have eavesdropped today in terms of hearing this story, um, I wonder what they're facing because all of us experience loss. If you live long enough, you will experience loss. And the Bible is a very, um, it's a very lofty book, but it's also a very gritty book that meets us in the midst of our grief. You made a statement, Jerry, that I want to just underline for a moment. 
I really understand why a loss can become central to our lives and why the grief that surrounds it can can become the defining moment. I mean, it hurts. I mean, it it it's terrible. It's, as you described, catastrophic. But I like what you did in your book. You called us away from the focus on the circumstances to focus on the, the God of all grace and mercy who can bring hope and healing and can keep us from becoming embittered in that process. And Barbara, in the weeks that followed Molly's birth and death, your granddaughter, you had a lot of people send you quotes and recommend articles or books. This book was the one God used most powerfully, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It was. There were other things too, but this was the book that I read through that really resonated in my soul. Mm. Because Jerry talked about not just the loss of death, but all kinds of loss and how our identity is wrapped up in how we respond to that loss. And um, it was really profound in my life. And I think both of you will be encouraged to know that we've had a lot of listeners over the last several weeks who have contacted us to get a copy of Jerry's book called A Grace Disguised. And we still have copies in our Family Life Resource Center. You can go to our website, familylifetoday.com. And the information about Jerry's book, which is called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. You'll find it available there, along with copies of the book that uh, you've just finished writing, Barbara, along with your daughter, Rebecca, called A Symphony in the Dark, Hearing God's Voice in Seasons of Grief. And it focuses in on the events of a year ago when your granddaughter, Molly, uh, was born and lived for seven days before she died. Again, the details about both of these books can be found online, familylifetoday.com, or call us toll-free, 1-800-358-6329, 1-800-F as in family, L as in life, and then the word today. When you get in touch with us, just ask about the books we were talking about on the radio. Someone will be able to help you, and uh, we'll make arrangements to have copies of either or both of these books sent to you. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about life getting back to normal after a catastrophic event like the one that Jerry Sitzer experienced almost two decades ago now. We'll find out if life ever really does get back to normal or if it's just a new normal. I hope you can join us for that. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, and our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We will see you back tomorrow for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas. Help for today. Hope for tomorrow.